Please don't tell me that this thing is not working. Anyway, if you're wondering, it's a miracle. If you're wondering, I am very much aware that there is an ice cream party at 7 o'clock. How could I forget it when nine out of ten people that I've met so far tonight have reminded me that ice cream melts, you know, if it's in there very long. <clears throat> I appreciate the opportunity tonight to, uh, to give you an update and um, a report on the mission work that this congregation is heavily involved in financially in South Sudan and is overseeing there. And if you're... Um, if you're visiting with us tonight or if you're new in the congregation, <clears throat> I'm going to give you a very brief background of what we're trying to do there. If you're not familiar with where that South Sudan is, it's just um, South Sudan is just below Egypt in Africa. Our primary goal in, uh, uh, I cannot read that. But that doesn't matter, I'll just add Lib. You know. <clears throat> Our primary goal <clears throat> in evangelizing South Sudan was to establish and construct and set in operation a preacher training school. And um, we have done that. Our campus was started and begun in 2010. And uh, we are now set up so that we can house and accommodate uh, 20 students at a time. And um, uh, these students are invited to come to our school. They come and they stay. Uh, and they live on campus. It's a free school. Um, they are, um, they study the Bible uh, from 8 a.m. until 5 p.m. every day, five days a week for three and a half months. This is one of our teachers right here. This man named Elias Udongpingi. We just call him Elias because of that. Uh, Elias is a very competent teacher. Uh, we found him in Nigeria. He had gone to Nigeria as an immigrant. He was converted there, went to a four-year Bible school in Nigeria uh, after becoming a Christian there. And then he came back to South Sudan, uh, and he is South Sudanese, in order to teach in our Bible school. Uh, Elias is very competent. He doesn't do this, but he is capable of, of uh, teaching Hebrew and Greek. Um, what we do in our Bible school, and this is um, the first class of about 20 students that we graduated, uh, what we do in our Bible school is we invite these students to come, <clears throat> and uh, they will come for level one. Well, our, our system is set up a little bit different. We have level one where people are invited to come and study. If they graduate from that and they do well when they go back home, then uh, they are invited to come back for level two, which is a little ad more advanced study. And uh, then if they graduate from that and do well, they're invited to come back for level three, which is uh, a little bit more advanced than that. Now, one of the things that we ran into uh, when we start, first started our Bible school construction there was that we were well aware that um, there were lots of people dying all over that area for lack of $2 worth of medicine or $3 at the most kind of medicine that would keep people alive. And it was kind of hard for us to 
to say to these people, look, we, we're sorry that your children are dying for lack of a little bit of medicine. We're sorry that, uh, that your husband died from malaria. Uh, you know, we're sorry about it. But we came to preach you Jesus. Well, our conscience couldn't hardly bear that. And so finally, it was settled by a parable in the Matthew, the 25th chapter, when Jesus is called the parable of the sheep and the goats. And Jesus is describing the judgment day. And he says at the judgment day, Jesus is going to welcome the righteous. And he's going to say to them that because I, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I was sick, you came and took care of me. And then the righteous in the parable are saying, Lord, when did we ever give you something to eat when you were hungry? When did we ever uh, give you something to drink when you were thirsty? When did we ever come and take care of you when you were sick? And he says in this parable, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. So this, this thing that the Lord laid on our conscience became a clinic. And so we established our clinic and uh, it, um, it um, serves about 300 to 350 patients a month. Uh, it's a little over 3,000 a year. And uh, um, it's doing a tremendous service. You know, when I go to there and I visit and I try to go by and spend a lot of time in our clinic and see how it's going, I have been there and taken this picture of this, this person that was very old and shriveled. And I looked at this person lying in this bed and I thought, they are not going to live very long. And I looked at this little boy and the nurse told me that when he was brought in, he, he wouldn't eat and he wouldn't drink. Wouldn't take anything by mouth. Well, you know they're not gonna live very long like that. And so then I worried about that for a long time. And then a day or two later, I, I approached the nurse and said, how did those people do that I, 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 uh, I saw? And I fully expected them to say, well, they passed away, you know, last night or something. And he said, well, they, they got better and they, they went home yesterday. And so, I, you know, for a two or three dollar bit of medicine, our clinic is able to keep people alive. Medicine that you folks help is keeping people alive that would otherwise be dead. So today in our clinic, we have three nurses and uh, we have one lab technician and one uh, maintenance uh, lady, a custodian, and then we have a clerk there as well. Now this man here is uh, Simon. Simon is our lab technician. He is very competent. And Simon, when I go there, he's very happy to show me his list and he keeps a detailed list of all the specimens and blood uh, types that he, he looks at, blood samples, and he looks at through his microscope that Jerry Franklin gave to him. Are you here, Jerry? Well, how could I miss you down here, you know? And he's very proud of that. And he will show me how many people uh, he had, had malaria, how many people had syphilis, how many people had, had this, and how many people had that in the course of each month. And he's very happy that because of his microscope, he can go and tell the nurses what is wrong with this patient so they can give them the right medicine. Now, as I, as I was thinking about describing this to you, I have to confess something to you that makes you 
see the inside of preachers, I guess. I've been working on this lesson for tonight for about a month or so. And I can just hear somebody smart aleck saying, well, why don't it ever show? You know, you work so long. And then working on it because I wanted, there's so much information I think you need to know and in such a short time to give it to you and it's got to be said just right and just clearly and correctly and everything. And so, you know, this morning at 4.30 I woke up. This thing was on my mind. I couldn't think of anything else. This afternoon I sat at my desk and I was, I was working on this lesson, how to get this done just right and I heard my computer make this little noise that it makes when it says you've got an email. Now, preface to all of that is that, you know, we can't always find competent medical people in South Sudan to hire to work in our clinic. Now, we'd never think about doing this in our, in our uh, uh, you know, Bible school, except maybe some of the cooks, you know. But... You know, we don't, but someone encouraged me one time when I explained this problem to me who had been experienced in African missions, and they said, you go ahead and hire non-Christians who are able to do this, and then you convert them. Well, I thought, well, that's a wonderful way to do things, so we did. Simon was not a Christian. Well, my computer goes off this afternoon and tells me that I have, a, that I have a, uh, an email. I, I go and check it. And it is from John Chalk, who is the nurse over our clinic there. And he says, Simon was baptized yesterday, and he was with me in services this morning. And it was almost as if God was standing over to the side speaking to me and said, Don, quit stressing. This work and my work in South Sudan is going just fine, just like I want it to go. And I relaxed because I think that's probably it. So in our staff, and, and it, we have right now, uh, is, uh, consists of three Bible teachers in our school. We have uh, six clinic workers. Uh, uh, we have three cooks. Uh, we have two security uh, men. Uh, we have one uh, maintenance or per caretaker of a campus. And then we have one public school Bible teachers that I will explain to you in just a moment. So then, what progress has been made since all of this was set up? What has happened there? We have these accomplishments so far. We have a school in our clinic has begun. And we have, I'm sorry, I have to turn around and look because I can't read that far. We have graduated over 125 new preachers in our, in our school. They have graduated, 125 of them, and we have converted several denominational men. There are a lot of these men that come to our school and want to go through as students, and, but they're not members of the Church of Christ. They're not Christians, and so what do we do? Well, we thought about this, and I was wondering, how long does a man have to be thirsty before you'll give him something to drink? How long does he have to be hungry before you'll give him something to eat? So how long does a man want to know the Bible before you'll let him study with you? 
And so we, if they want to come and study the Bible, we admit them because we've learned that 95% of them are going to become Christians in just a very short time. And we'll give you some examples of that as we go on through the lesson. We have now also graduated 35 men from our level two program, which is a little more advanced. And our first class of level three will be held this fall. Now, I want to suggest to you that this is more than numbers. When we say that we have graduated 125 preachers out of our Bible school, you need to understand that when, when we first began this work, these men were in their villages. They knew the front part of the Bible from the back part of the Bible, and that was about it. They knew how to lead a song or maybe two or three songs in the worship services. They knew how to read the Bible because usually they were the only ones that had a copy of the Bible in the whole congregation. And they knew how to lead in prayer, but they didn't know anything about the Bible. And so when these 125 men go through our school, studying the Bible five days a week, all day, every day for three and a half months, they're going to go home knowing things about the Bible. And as we watch these men, we see them as they, some of them are rising to the surface and they're rising above everybody else. And, you know, when these men do well and they come back and they want to study some more and they go through level two and then they go through level three, these, this, is, this is something that five years ago did not even exist. And now we have those people that are trained. And so, you know, then we have, now we can able to, to count uh, perhaps 50 new congregation. Now, an example of what progress we have made, uh, best, maybe the best way to do this is to give you an example of some of our students. Mark came from this congregation here, and after he went through our school, he went home and started a congregation in his home village. He baptized 15 people immediately. And then on one of our trips, a man accompanying me went with him out through the bush to the church where he was preaching, and they baptized 20 that particular Sunday. And they have made arrangements and that they are going to target four more villages in which they're going to start congregations. Now, here's one of our students. He went home and established a church in his home village. This is a picture of that church on that Sunday morning, and they're baptizing people. And this is what we see our students doing. I am very proud and very happy of the congregation of Sudanese that meets on our campus because they're now doing things that they thought of that were good and not just because the Americans told them that this is what they ought to do. And one of the things that they have done is that about two years ago, they started a, an annual youth rally in which they invite all the teenagers from all the congregations around to come in for about three days in which they have this big rally. And then this year, they had uh, just past year, they had the second annual one. And during this time, there were 96 of these teenagers that came to this youth rally. Now, the interesting thing about that, young folks, is that some of these teenagers walked 15 to 17 miles just to get there and the same distance to get home. That says to me that they are really hungry for fellowship and for the knowledge of the Bible. And at the same time they started that, the congregation there and the Bible school teachers started what they call a, an annual lectureship. 
a South Sudan Bible lectureship in which they invite the church leaders and preachers and their wives to come for about three days of fellowship and Bible study and preaching. And this year there were 51 of those men and their wives who came for this. And incidentally concerning the, uh, the young people, there were 10 of them baptized uh, during that same period that they were there. Another thing that they have done is that the people in the congregation there have built two of these huts like this and um, they have built it to start kindergartens. This was their idea. There is no kindergarten, public kindergarten there. It was designed to be an outreach into the community. And uh, they don't have much in the way of uh, seating and furniture in, in those two buildings, but they are being taught. Um, there's not much going on like that in the way that Americans would recognize because not many American teachers are teaching while they're holding their baby, but uh, this is the way it is. And, and um, there's not much in the way of um, uh, teaching supplies either. All they have is a green board and some chalk, but the children do learn. And it is an approach to get into the community. Now, all of this I'd like to emphasize has been accomplished since 2010 with no Americans living in South Sudan. Trained South Sudanese are teaching their own people in their own language and in their own culture. And I also like to suggest to you this important fact to us, that when these men graduate from this school, we do not promise them that we will give them a job and support them preaching in some congregation because we'd want them to get into the habit of thinking, well, I'll go to school and the Americans will give me a good job and they will pay me. Nor do we tell the congregations that when you start, we're going to build you a building because we do not want the South Sudanese to get the, get the idea that, that the Americans will build these things for you and they will pay you and uh, there's no need for us to do it. We want them to understand from the very beginning that the support of their preachers and the buildings of, that they have, that this is something they need to learn to do on their own and not to expect the Americans to take care of them all the time. So what does the future look like in this work then? Let me illustrate that too by some of our students. Griff, do you remember the time that you and I went to Opari? Griff, you awake? Okay, 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 he's with me. Griff and I, I think was on our very first trip we made to South Sudan. We went to this village of Opari because there was a Sudanese Christian living in Nashville. That was his home village and he wanted us to go and preach to his people. So he was there at that time. He arranged a meeting with his relatives and other people that they knew in the community. And we went out to their home place and, and, and I guess we preached the first gospel sermon, true gospel sermon that ever been preached in that community, in that area. Well, one of our people later came and preached more and baptized more people and started a congregation there. Among those baptized was this man here named Julius. Julius is just the nicest man that you will ever meet. He speaks English very fluently, does translating for us. Julius was baptized, 
And within three months of Julius' baptism, he was teaching and baptizing other people. Now, when the time the school came, I think he was one of the first students to go to our first class, first session. And he came, but he brought some other men from the Opara congregation with him to go through the school. How long does a man have to wait after he's dry from baptism before he can start to preach and to be trained to go and preach to others? Another example here is this man sitting over to your right in this picture. His name is James Sakuri. James, uh, James works for the UN as a good job. James was converted by a lady in Mount Sterling, Kentucky, whom he has never seen, never met. He had an internet Bible study with her. He became convinced he needed to become a Christian and convinced of how, so we got him in touch with some of our people there, and uh, he was baptized. When, J when James was baptized, he brought his brother with him to be baptized as well. And then after a while, his brother decided that he would come to Bajak as a student in our school, and he brought a friend of his with him to go through the school. Now, when I was back in, in Juba last uh, uh, February, I was with the Juba congregation. And guess who was preaching? James's brother. And he was preaching in English so I could understand what he said. And he was doing a good job of it. And I sat there pleased that this man had come by that circuitous route to, be a, a, to graduate from our school and now to be preaching someplace. That says we're making some, 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 some progress. We've also had an exciting new public school opportunity that the Lord has laid on our conscience as well. In South Sudan, the government mandates that every public school should have a Bible class every day. But the problem is that there's very seldom anybody that knows enough about the Bible to teach it. So if there is a class, usually it's, it's a, a class of just ethics. But there's a school, a large school, just a, about a block across the road from our campus. And we approached the headmaster there and asked him, if we can provide a teacher for you in your school to teach the Bible, would you let us do that? And he said, why, sure. And so we put John Ochen over there. Now, John is another story of one of our, of our students that, that we point to as the success of our school. John came to the school. He was a public teacher, public school teacher. He taught English. He came to our school, wanted to study the Bible. He was not a Christian. But he was baptized a few, works, a few weeks later after becoming you know, a student. And then James, uh, John graduated. And John received such high recommendations that uh, we asked him if he would teach the Bible to these students. So for $200 a month, John can teach the Bible to about 800 students in the public school there. Now there are other schools there asking us if we will do the same for their school. Not long ago, I was in uh, uh, 
uh, in uh, Bajak. And I invited the chief and some of his sub-chiefs to come to our campus. I wanted to give them a tour of everything. So they came and I gave them a tour of everything that we had, all of our buildings, all the work that we were doing. And we went into the room where our, was our medicine storage room. And, and while I was explaining what that room contained, I reached over into a box. Patty Willoughby, are you here? Okay, we won't ask you to stand up, but you know Patty. I reached into this box and pulled out one of the teddy bears that, that uh, uh, she and some of her friends make. And I gave it to the chief there. The chief is the one with the cane. And um, I explained to him what it was and how we used it. That it was given to the little kids when they came and they were sick. And uh, so I was reaching out, because I was just showing it to him, and I was reaching out kind of for it, but he wasn't reaching back, you know. With the... And um, then he said, um, I have grandchildren. So, Patty, if you will look at this man's hand and the tall man just behind him and to his left, you look in their hands, there are two of your teddy bears that these men have. And I had told this chief because I knew him for several years, I said, if you take this teddy bear home with you and you snuggle up with it at night, you will sleep better. And he may be still snuggling to that for all I know, you know. Well... While we were there and in that conversation, at the end of it, I asked them, do you have any, any questions about anything we're doing here? Do you have any suggestions, any comments? They didn't have one comment. They said, we've given land to many people in our community, but you folks are the only ones that have ever used it. But then I, I wanted them to, to, to open up and tell us anything they felt because I wanted them to be happy that we were in their community. I wanted them to be pleased that we were there. And I wanted them to know all about us. And the tall man behind him was the chief who gave us the land for, from the, in the beginning for our school. And he said, I have a suggestion. He said, I would like to see you build a maternity ward because we have so many women who are dying in childbirth. And I was thinking, do you understand how much money you're talking about? I know you don't, you know. So I was polite and didn't say much about it. Several months went by and I got on my, my computer and did some research. And I found out that in South Sudan, one out of every 10 babies dies at childbirth and that one out of every seven mothers die in childbirth too. So the Lord laid this maternity ward project on us. But we're so fortunate that when the Lord lays these projects on our conscience, he provides the means for doing so. He opens a door and there was a donor that came up with the money and so we're now building a maternity ward and I've purchased 20,000 bricks that have been unloaded and they're on the campus. You're probably familiar with the war that's going on right now. This war in South Sudan, it's a civil war, has brought about two great challenges for us. One is the emergency food assistance, which we took care of some months ago. And the second is that it gives us a perfect evangelism opportunity. 
You know, when there are, there are right now, maybe over, well over, according to the reports, over 600,000 people that are in refugee camps. Now, these people have nothing to do all day long but sit under a tree and talk with each other. And so when an evangelist comes by and asks them to come and hear the preaching that we're going to have, they will go. They have nothing else to do, and so they do. Up there where you see the red arrow, we have, we have hundreds of thousands of people coming down through that red arrow from South Sudan into Ethiopia. Where the green arrow is, we have two refugee camps. There are six refugee camps up there where the red arrow is. And so we started the refugee camp evangelism program. Another burden that the Lord laid upon us, uh, but he provided the means for it. So now we have one evangelist in a refugee camp in Kenya, four evangelists in refugee camps in Uganda, and then we have 14 uh, evangelists in refugee camps in, uh, in Ethiopia. And these are the pictures of some of the preachers that were available the time I took this picture or had it taken uh, in Ethiopia, preaching in the camps there. And this is Mark and Michael who are, who are preaching in the in the uh, uh, Ajumani refugee camp in Uganda, and James and Edward who are preaching in the Kuriondongo refugee camp in Uganda. I am very happy about the fact that these last four men, these four men that I've just shown you the pictures of, they are graduates of our school. They've been through our school and now they're in a foreign country preaching to their people. Now, this figure I'm going to give to you now is not from a preacher count. And I have not embellished this figure at all in case you want to question its accuracy. But we have, through these men, this program only started about a year ago, but through this refugee camp evangelism, we have seen hundreds of people baptized in Ethiopia. And I know we baptized over 100 in the refugee camps in Uganda. So it is working. This is, the ref, this is the church building for the refugee camp in, in Uganda, one of them. This is a refugee camp meeting place in another camp. And here the services are about to begin. Sometimes these, uh, these people, if they're fortunate, they have tarps and they can have a building like this. Sometimes they sit on the ground and listen to preaching. This is how they meet. Sometimes they sit on these poles and listen to the preaching as well. But they are baptizing people. And sometimes, you know, they said they have to throw chunks in the water uh, to scare off the crocodiles and the snakes, but they are baptizing people. And I don't have time to tell you too much more. This is um, Santino. Many of you have asked me, well, how is the refugee status for Santino coming along? Uh, Santino, just so that everybody will know who you are, would you stand up? Uh, just so that everybody knows who Santino is. Uh, we've had, uh, you want to meet him if you, he's a very delightful person. Uh, the United States Immigration Service has rejected our first application for the immigration of his people with all kinds of things. And so we've hired an immigration attorney and we've gone through the first thing, which was to uh, have DNA tests made of he and his wife and their children to prove that their children are theirs. So it's gonna take a long time, but we're continuing to do all of that. 
So how did that all get accomplished? I think this sums it up very well as Isaiah said, all that we have accomplished, you have done for us. I usually ask if there are questions and we don't have time to do that tonight here, but uh, if you will catch me, I'll be back at the, back at the auditorium uh, afterwards. Chances are that you're going to go get ice cream instead of stopping by to talk to me, but maybe a couple of you would just to make me feel better. And uh, I'll answer any questions that you have. Now let us switch gears for just a moment. I was very fortunate that I married into a very godly family. All the uncles and aunts and grandparents and everybody were faithful Christians in my wife's family. One of our favorites in the family was a man named Uncle Jimmy. Uncle Jimmy was a preacher. He, had, he worked as a trade to make a living, but he was a preacher and well-respected in his community. Uncle Jiminy died just not long ago. And um, just before he died, the doctors called the family in and said that, uh, and explained to them that Jimmy wasn't going to live much longer. Or they said, uh, we can put him on life support and he will live a little bit longer. The family decided that they would like for Uncle Jimmy to make that decision. And so they gathered around his bed and told him about this and asked him what he would like to do. And with the effort that he had, he raised his hand up, pointed upward and said, home. I would like to think that there's nobody in this audience tonight that could not deal with the fact that they know that if they're going to go through the same circumstances in the next couple of days, could not face it with absolute certainty and confidence that they're going home. But if you're not absolutely certain about that, we invite you to come and talk to us tonight about how we can help you so that when that comes, that point in your life, you can raise your hand and say, home. If we could